0: want to disrupt the industry i mean but nothing's going to change unless kind of consumers change and consumers can't change unless they can actually find a a genuine alternative and so that's where the role of brands like yours and ours is, is to actually help people shop their values
1: you're listening to producing with purpose an ethical business podcast with me tony corrales We'll be speaking to some of the greatest CEOs, creatives, founders, and entrepreneurs who have established and managed companies that put ethical practices at the forefront of their mission, all whilst navigating the challenges of the business world. Thanks for joining us for episode two of Producing with Purpose. Today we're speaking with Nick, who is the founder of the Australian fair trade certified fashion label Etico. Etico's got an amazing history and does some really incredible work in the social enterprise space. And Nick's story goes way further than that, all the way back to the beginnings with his work in Aboriginal communities in Australia, where he created a social enterprise laundromat, among many other businesses that aim to have really positive impact. We had an extremely long chat and it went for a lot longer than what you're even going to hear today. And I've cut down this to what I think is the real core information that I wanted to share with you. So with that in mind, I'm going to jump straight into it. But I will say Nick talks about a lot of information, some reports, some stats, references, a movie, all the way through the podcast. And if you want to find out more about this, you can head over to noskin.co to the podcast section of the site where we've got the show notes from this episode and we'll be linking to some of those things that Nick spoke about. So today on Producing with Purpose, we have got Nick, uh, who is the founder of Etico, Etico Fairtrade. Um, Etico were founded in 2005, so have been at it now for nearly 15 years, and they are the first fashion brand in the Southern Hemisphere to be Fair Trade certified, which is a pretty impressive feat in itself. Um, so Nick, thank you so much for joining me. It's actually, to speak to someone who's got an accolade like that is a real honor, so thanks very much for being here.
0: Uh, thanks for inviting us to be part of your program. Yeah, Yeah. excellent.
1: You know, we've talked a little bit about the podcast and what it actually means and what it aims to achieve. But ultimately, it is about creating a business, but creating a business that has an ethical ethos at the forefront of it. And honestly, some of the challenges that come with that. Um, So because I'm doing a similar thing with my brand, I'm just sort of selfishly coming into these conversations as well to be a little bit of a sponge and find out about an industry that I'm getting into. Some of what we'll be talking about and the first theme I suppose we'll cover off is Etico as a social impact brand and then the balancing of business. That's really the core of what this podcast addresses. So, you know, you've started numerous ventures from a social impact laundromat I read to um, Ginta Sports and now Etico clothing as well. Um, I do want to touch on the social impact laundromat quickly. Just tell me about that. Yeah, I was going to say, how did you, uh, I can't recall mentioning that to you, but uh, <laughs> no, um,
0: before I started my own business, Herdico, um, I spent five years working on remote Indigenous communities in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm. I was actually um, um, successful in getting a job as an adult educator um, employed by the Northern Territory College, Open College of TAFE. Nice. And I was meant to be running literacy and numeracy programs on remote communities. We're talking remote, uh, three hundred kilometres northwest of Alice Springs along the Tanami right. Track. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And uh, when I got there, um, I sat down with quite a few people to talk about what the about the work I was going to be doing, and uh, the feedback I got from community members was, "What's the point of running literacy and numeracy uh, classes on a remote community if there's no jobs?" Hmm. And uh, Yeah, I thought they had had a point. Yeah, got to say, it's a point. uh, And I spoke about it with my immediate supervisors, and they said, well, what can we do? Can we actually look at creating employment and then actually running literacy literacy and numeracy programs around the work that the community members were actually involved in? And, uh, yeah, so we thought, you know, what's the first thing we could actually do? And we thought, you know, what did the community need? Um, So it was an Indigenous community called Damu, and uh, it's about 700 people. Um, But from what I can recall, the only people who had washing machines in their homes were the uh, outsiders, the Mm -hmm. non-Indigenous people who were employed by the Education Department or the police force or the nurses. So we thought, why not set up a a commercial laundromat? And um, soon after I arrived there, a parliamentarian from uh, Queensland came in to do a bit of research into what communities needed and I pulled him up and I said you know, can you give us some money to set up this commercial yeah. uh, laundromat because you know, as far as health issues are concerned you know, the people don't have many opportunities to wash their clothing and uh, yeah he, he, I think he generally gave us about $20,000 and uh, mm. the community itself uh, contributed some money from the royalty, uh, the mining royalties okay yeah and yeah, you know, we set up a community laundromat, and then we started running classes, uh, basic literacy, and numeracy programs, based around the um, the work that I think it was about five women had to do to manage the laundromat. Mm. And um, that was my first venture into social enterprise. I mean, okay. at the time, I'd never heard the expression of social enterprise, but if you're talking about you know businesses that did more than just generate profit, but also actually created some purpose, and uh, that was the first of many social enterprises that I helped set up so it was a great training ground for someone who wants to work in social enterprise because all those years I was doing it I'd never heard the expression social enterprise and you were just doing it we're just doing it <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah and uh so when I came back to Melbourne you know I actually tried to work in that kind of space um you know I applied for work with Oxfam and World Vision and a couple of other organizations yeah and I was always unsuccessful uh, largely because I didn't have the postgraduate qualifications
1: it's infuriating isn't
0: it and um but that's when I thought you know I want to work in the space so what can I do and and you know, one thing led to another and then I picked up the distribution rights for a brand called no sweat so no yeah, I read about that yeah so no sweat was the world's first ethically made uh, shoe brand and okay. had the Australian distribution for that and that that's was awesome. about 2003
1: yeah okay so you picked up picking up the um, distribution rights for no sweat kind of I guess goes into the question that I had. There is: Would you class yourself as an entrepreneur with, um, you know, with, with the ethos to to do good in the community, or do you class yourself as a social enterprise activist? Yeah, good question.
0: No one's actually ever asked me that question. <laughs> it's... I've kind of thought about. No,
1: I've
0: I've been interested in business since working on remote Indigenous communities because I could see that business can actually have a positive impact. Absolutely. Um, and uh, the idea of actually making money by doing good appealed to me. Yep. Um, and, um, yeah. And that's what I've been trying to do is uh, you know, run a successful business while creating positive social impact.
1: I've seen a quote from you as well that says, we wanted to be 100% confident the apparel and footwear we were buying hadn't been made by a child or some poor worker being ripped off in a developing country at the time it didn't exist so we created it that was you know from what i see there your foundation for creating etico and the the decision behind it you created that nearly 15 years ago now when you had that vision and you actually then realized that vision and have created this amazing outcome did you think that 15 years from that point in the future things would have evolved a little bit more in terms of the whole industry being a bit more responsible
0: Uh, I kind of really struggled at the beginning because uh, even though I felt passionate about these issues, I wasn't i wasn't 100% convinced that everyone else did. Yeah. Um, I remember meeting uh, an, an author, actually he was an academic in, at ANU in Canberra and he wrote a book years ago, I'm trying to think how many years ago, it must have been around the same time as I started, uh, called The Myth of the Ethical Consumer. Okay. So there was actually, yeah, you know, I think some research into this whole thing. Mm mind you, Fairtrade had been operating in the UK for a few years and was just starting in Australia. And yeah, this academic wrote The Mythical Vehicle Consumer and uh, we were both giving presentations at a marketing conference, I was invited to talk about guerrilla marketing, about how I was growing my business and building my my own community. Mm -hmm. And then he kind of gave his spin, which was that, yeah. Don't believe everything that you you read, um, and that you know. The, though there might be research that saying that people did give a damn, the reality was that they don't always practice what they preach. Yeah. And he gave an example of uh, setting up a a display in a coffee shop in Canberra, where they offered fair trade coffee for a fifty cent fifty cent premium. And okay. if you bought that fair trade coffee, this and there's a photo of some Ethiopian, Ethiopian coffee grower, and um, if you pay 50 cents extra, it would help this farmer send his kids to school, put a roof over their head, and feed his family three meals a day. And they ran it for about a week or so, and uh, the take-up was about six percent wow. of the 6% of the people who walked into that coffee shop pay that 50 cents extra
1: that's pretty depressing
0: isn't it (laughs) it was and then but he said then the following week they did it again but this time they made sure someone attractive of the opposite sex served the customers okay and the take up was significantly higher and I I can't recall the exact figure but I think it was something like 60 to 70% wow okay (laughs) so the his thinking was that uh, people want to do the right want to be seen as doing the right thing yeah by people they're trying to impress rather than yeah, it's like virtual signaling, I think they call that these days. yeah, so
1: that's an that's an interesting concept then and you know I can see that being the case, and in the coffee shop example is a brilliant example. Do you think that then creates a little bit of a challenge, I suppose, especially in the current era where you know people out there they're having a conversation, they're having a coffee and chatting to each other, and they might class themselves, you know they might class themselves as more ethical or more willing to take those decisions? but especially if they're then purchasing online in the privacy of their own home without you know somebody else watching their decisions then that's actually possibly meaning that the ethical brands are getting a 6% portion of the market versus the 60% that we might hope that we'd be able to access yeah
0: well this gets back to the uh, the magic of marketing and uh, yeah. yeah so i'm not sure whether you noticed that with Utica, you know we've <laughs> we've invested something in a logo and yeah. you know, we're hoping it is a form of virtual signaling, but we want people to recognize the Edigo symbol yes. as representing something which is actually genuinely creating a positive mm. social impact. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, so. I think I think that's really powerful is you are using, you're trying to leverage your brand there to be like, to be the badge of honor. That's, yeah, you yeah know, it's yeah. very yeah. simple. And, it's and
0: simple. that's why we kind of put a lot of effort into becoming Fairtrade certified. I mean, firstly, you know, to make sure that we were doing the right thing, yeah, uh, but also to give people the confidence and also given the opportunity to say, yeah, this is a fair trade, you know, here's the fair trade logo. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is so giving confidence that they are doing the right thing and actually share that with their community. Yeah.
1: Make sure you subscribe to Producing with Purpose wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be releasing a new episode every week throughout 2021. Mm-hmm. For people listening who are dialing into this, explain in, explain in your words what difference it actually means to be Fairtrade certified. So um, if you actually look at
0: the, the very start of the product or where it's actually sourced from, so the cotton that goes into all our clothing and into most of our footwear, um, it all um, comes from a farmer cooperative in India called the Chitna Organ, Organic mm-hmm. Farmer Cooperative. And uh, it's a Fairtrade certified cooperative. And um, so the cotton, um, the price of cotton goes up and down, fluctuates quite a bit. Mm. And um, yes, you know, farmers in India, as in around the cotton farms around the world, they kind of, they can either have a good year or a really bad year. More often than not, it's a bad year. Um, uh, but um, every year the fair trade label kind of sits down with representatives of, of the cotton farming community and actually decides they d- determine what a fair price for their cotton is Okay. so you know what price would do farmers need to get to feed their families you know build you know, put a roof over their homes you know um, yeah. yeah that kind of stuff
1: yeah so do you see much fluctuation in your in your pricing then to actually have the products made due to the fluctuations of the cotton industry uh, no because the um,
0: the raw materials are not the most expensive part of what you do yeah, yeah. Okay. so yeah it's not um but, you know, I wouldn't do what I'd do if, if I wasn't sure that the farmers were getting a fair paid a fair price. Absolutely. And, the, you know, it's our entire supply chain is actually certified fair trade. So it's not just the farmers. So the factory that we work with in India, I mean, they're paying living wages to workers already. Yeah. And, you know, the difference between uh, a minimum wage and a living wage in countries like india bangladesh pakistan is quite significant um yeah. in uh, i've seen the kind of results and there's actually quite a few australian fashion brands sourcing garments in in bangladesh and they have different accreditations which sound similar to fair Trade like okay well, i won't mention the accreditations <laughs> but it gives you the impression that they're doing the right thing but most of those accreditations all they're doing is basically guaranteeing that the workers get paid the minimum wage.
1: Right. Okay. Which in, in that and circumstance,
0: and in Bangladesh, yeah. the difference between the living wage and the minimum wage is Very about big. four times the difference. So, yeah. Um, yeah, there's one particular brand I won't mention to you, but they're not too. <laughs> they're pretty popular with the music industry. Okay. Um, yeah, the workers in their factories get paid about eighty dollars a month.
1: Right. Okay.
0: In Bangladesh, that's the minimum wage. In, yeah. I think it's eighty-three US dollars a month, but the the living wage is around two hundred.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So do so so, you see that as a fo- I suppose, not, not greenwashing, you know, it's not relative to sustainability, but the equivalent thereof is... Yeah.
0: Well, the thing is that, um, you know, I think it's greenwashing, I think it's ethical yeah. washing. Uh, but, you know, my definition of ethical, I think, varies different from other people's definition. I mean, there are major retailers whose names we won't mention, <laughs> but where you can buy teasers for $10. Yeah. And, you know, they claim that they have ethical supply chains. Well, yeah. <laughs> sorry. They have a slightly different definition. I mean, when the CEO of a company gets paid more than a million dollars a year, and yeah. then they can't pay workers in a developing country a living wage, yeah. I hardly describe
1: that as being an ethical mm. fashion brand. Yeah. So what were some of the challenges then, sort of circling back to the, the founding of the business and growing it? Yeah, business? well, yeah, and getting to huge, that point.
0: Huge challenges. I mean, <laughs> firstly, I mean, my background's not in workers' rights or, yeah. you know, I'm a high school teacher. Who's got interest in sustainability and social justice? So, I relied on the work and advice of other people who've been working in this space for years, Mm. including Jeff Ballinger, this guy who, you know, that union activist who's been around for quite a few years, helped found No Sweat. So, he's given me a lot of advice over the years. Right. And I've been working within the fair trade system. So, I mean, I don't have an audit, I don't have a team of auditors. Yeah. And so, I rely on our fair trade audits. And we have to pay for that. I mean, there's a there's a reason why fair trade certification costs money is because you have to pay for auditors actually to do the inspections. I mean, I can tell you what a brilliant, a brilliant guy we are, I am or uh, (laughs) how, uh, how generally concerned I'm a fellow human being, but how do I prove it to you? Yeah. Um, You know, i come across lots of brands who say, oh, I know the family who make my products and I think, well, that's well and good. How are you going to prove that they actually?" Paying themselves a living wage, or yeah, paying true. the staff that they're actually living wage. Yeah. Um, so yeah, relying on the advice and direction of people who've worked in the space for, for mm. quite a few years, relying on third-party accreditations, credible third-party accreditations, yeah. because there's a heap of non uh, yeah. non-credible yeah. ones. Now, as ethical consumerism and sustainable fashion be- grows, um, yeah, you know, there are new accreditations popping up, and you know making it easier for brands to be become accredited and there's often a reason why it's easy because they don't really expect much and yeah. a lot of it's actually just self-reporting or yeah mm-hmm. yeah or they're kind of industry groups who kind of tap yes, each other on yeah. the on the back and say you know well done and yeah now <laughs> we all good and then just yeah it's actually hard to get fair trade certification
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, through the flow the flow label you know the one you see yeah. on coffee and chocolate yeah, yeah it's harder to keep it Okay. Because the auditing is regular; because it's not just once off. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, just taking a little bit of a step into some of the business side of things as well. You mentioned the No Sweat brand, um, and I was going to ask actually did that did that evolve into Etico? Has that carried on in its own right? No. Um,
0: so, No Sweat was run by a lot of a number of passionate activists. Yeah. Who didn't always get on. <laughs> we weren't, weren't always on the same page. Yeah. And we were finding that being based in australia we were having to even though we were paying you know, for the product we were having to develop our own marketing material yeah. and doing a lot of the work ourselves so i thought if i'm going to do that I might as well just make my own brand yeah yeah fair enough <laughs> yeah and uh and yeah soon after we moved away from the, the brand kind of collapsed okay and uh yeah so i was kind of glad i moved away when we did uh, because yeah. basically i think there's 11 shareholders in that company wow and yeah, you know, there's 11 people too many and um, there's a lot <laughs> yeah. to be said for dictatorships um you, you get things done and you don't have to argue with anyone yeah yeah
1: i'm just taking a quick break here to let you know that no skin will officially be launching in february 2021 we'll be going live with our first range of vegan boots and we're really excited for you to see what we've been working on for the last nine months If you head over to www.noskin.co today and you sign up for the mailing list, then you'll get 10% off your first order over at No Skin. On the site, you can also see the show notes for this podcast and the other episodes, including the third episode that comes up after this, featuring Emily Hazel from Serotonin Eatery in Melbourne. we're focusing quite a lot a bit on Etico and we've just talked a bit there about No Sweat as well but um, you know Ginta Sport is the other the other company that you have under the Etico umbrella I suppose how did that how did that come to be?
0: Yeah so um, you know, when I actually launched Etico it wasn't as a fashion brand it was actually as a sports brand and at one stage we were selling Etico sports balls you know soccer balls yep. and uh, rugby balls and Aussie rules balls and all those balls were actually fair trade certified so the first they were actually the first non-food products in australia to be certified fair trade okay cool and um i was selling the no sweat brand and then when we spoke to the uh people who produced the sports balls and we said look if you can stitch soccer balls or what's the chances you can actually stitch footwear and make you know a range yeah. of footwear?" and yeah, you know, they looked at it and um it wasn't just me asking him that question there's also the distributor of the no sweat brand in the us in the uk they also asked the same thing and yeah, so they said yeah we can actually produce footwear and so we kind of committed to buying footwear from them as long as they uh, yeah could produce them and it was a certified fair trade factory yeah so you know they were, they were fair trade certified to make sports balls and you know we basically paid them the same and the same fair trade premiums for making footwear oh. so we gradually transitioned to introducing etico sneakers in the same factory as making our sports balls and then um yeah, we started expanding our range to include clothing and mm. um, 2000 by 2008, I introduced Etico Clothing. Um, and then around 2009, I know some people were confused whether Etico was a sports brand or a fashion brand. Yeah. So um, so then I decided to split the brand and create a de- dedicated sports brand. I was always cheesed off that Nike, the brand, was actually, as someone of Greek origin, I was always cheesed <laughs> off that they'd actually use the Greek word for victory, victory <laughs> yeah. for their brand name. So... I asked uh, people in the Walpuri community what victory meant and what was the Walpuri word for victory, and they said Jinta, uh, And I thought, okay, nice. it actually sounds like it sounds like a potentially good brand name. Yeah. And I asked you know, whether they was okay with uh, me using the name, and they, they had no mm. problem with it. And, uh, yeah, so we split the brand. So Etico was focusing purely on fashion, and Ginto was uh, a pure sports brand. And um, at one stage, we were selling just as much Jinta products as we were Etico products. Um, but then we found that there was more interest in Etico, especially after 2013 with uh, the Rana Plaza tragedy yeah. and there's was a whole lot tra- discussion about fashion, the impact of fashion. And the Etico brand kind of took off and I just didn't have the resources to run two brands. Yeah, absolutely. And so I just basically left Ginta to its own devices. We still sell a few balls every month. Mm. Um, But um, I'd love to be able to find the time, resources to actually get reinvigorated. I'm actually working on the idea of partnering with an an Indigenous organisation to look after the Jinta brand because a large part of what we did with Jinta was actually raise money for Indigenous sports, um, especially in the Northern Territory. Mm. You know, we're using a Walpere word and we're actually funding Indigenous sports, so i thought it'd be great to get an indigenous organization to look after the sales and marketing and let us focusing on the supply chain and fulfillment yeah so you know i am talking to some aboriginal organizations at the moment Mm. i spoke to one last year now i've got another one who's interested so potentially we could get jinta off the ground or scaling up pretty soon yeah so the but they're two distinct brands so we have etico the fashion brand into the sports brand but we also have another part of our business called etico merch which involves looking after the supply chains for other brands yeah. and other organisations. So, you know, a lot of organisations talk about the commitment to sustainability and social impact mm. and they need help with the procurement of branded merchandise. Yeah. So our single biggest customers are MIT university. And, you know, mm. we've also done jobs for a lot of faith based organisations and environmental groups, but I mean, the, there's a lot of work to be done because it's pretty staggering about how many organisations talk about sustainability and social justice but don't actually apply to their purchasing decisions I mean yeah every bank in Australia's got an ethical purchasing policy but then you look at their uniforms <laughs> yeah true and uh yeah. yeah yeah every university in Australia is a signatory to the uh, UN SDGs the sustainable development goals yeah but the only one who's actually applying it to their procurement policies seems to be RMIT wow
1: so you sort of I mean, I suppose as you've evolved in the business and you've done things, things like that are just, they're just part of what you do day to day. You've got Etico Match, but effectively that's a decision that you've made along the way to start acquiring customers in a, in a different way. Did that naturally come about because you found that organizations were coming to you for larger bulk production or did you go to seek and expand the business in that way?
0: Uh, it's a mixture. I think uh, most of the customers that we get at the moment are the ones who come to us. Yeah, um, we've never had the marketing team to actually go out there and kind of aggressively, you know, bring on other customers. Yeah, but you know, we have started to do that, and um, and we, we're not we're not doing it because we you know it's, it's, we really want to do it. We do it for cash flow purposes. I and mean, the yeah. reality is, uh, as a business, you need to keep the money coming in, mm. and um, by creating demand for co- for fair trade cotton. Whether it's for our own brand or other people's brand, it's still supporting the farmers that we've been working with. We, Absolutely, we've only ever worked with one farmer cooperative since day one, and yeah, you know, we're you know we're one of their longest serving customers. And yeah, uh, you know, producing stuff for other brands helps generate more work for the for the factories, for the workers in the factories, as well as for the demand for the cotton for the from the fair trade farms that we've been working with since two thousand and seven.
1: Yeah, where whatever the means of expanding the business are if it yeah. essentially the great thing is with with a brand like this is you know if you're ma- if you're making more sales you're effectively helping more people and that social impact well, we're is. an impact business yeah. so you
0: know the the bigger the sales the more impact we create right? yeah and how we bring that in yeah
1: with that in mind then aspirational business goals i suppose are where you think you could take it in the next couple of years is is there a point that you're aiming to take etico up to another step yeah yeah well
0: um, you know we've been chipping away every year for yeah. 14 years now, and yeah. it's been you know we've been growing by 10 to 20 percent every year. Amazing. Um, but we really need to scale it up. Um, you know, I need to take the business to a level where I don't have to spend as much time in the business as I've been doing to date. And I need to yeah. build a team of people around me who can take it to the next kind of level. Um, but you know, we uh, the online space is where we want to play the most. Yeah. And um, we we know we're only scratching the surface in Australia and. Um, but we were also staggered by the amount of traffic we're getting to our website from North America. Okay. Um, I looked at the figures today, and I think it's about forty-two percent of the traffic to our website wow. is from North America. Even though we don't actually market to the North American market, we don't do any, none of our advertising points to North America. So we're just wondering what the hell is happening. <laughs> um, but you know, we've, you know, we were, um, you know, we got approached a few months ago by New York University to produce a range of footwear for them and you nice. know they and we asked them why did they kind of come to us and they said oh we want to do everything as eco and ethical as possible and we've looked at what other brands are kind of claiming and you're the ones who've got the accreditations and the credibility that the other brands don't seem to have um so I thought, you, know, a- we, you know we would like to see taking we'd like to take the brand into the mainstream in yeah in, in australia but also take it overseas um but you know the uh, there is a growing consciousness for products um, in australia but you know it's worldwide i mean we've got wholesale customers as far as iceland and and uh, mauritius south korea uh, yeah. you know, we've we're picking up wholesale, but you know we need to scale the business up so over the next few months we're looking at uh, doing a, a, a equity raising kind of campaign okay. so well uh, you know we we wanted to talk to Individuals who might be interested in investing in in Edico and helping us kind of take the business next level, but we're also interested in running a crowdfunding for equity campaign. Yeah. Where you know we've got a a significant following, so we're seriously thinking about offering our supporters an opportunity to invest in the business and help us you know take yeah you know, take, take take it to the next sense. level. And you know we're not we're not going to be raising money to take many other business all into building up our stock levels yeah building our team you know doing more marketing what's the point of being one of the world's most ethical brands if no one knows about us yeah. and you know we we haven't done a very good job of telling people about what we do or yeah you know, right
1: yeah well so I mean you must have you've done a you've done a pretty good job and as you say you get a lot of your traffic through online um, but but that said, I mean that that will have been in in recent years. But when you started this 14 years or so ago, and you actually mentioned right at the beginning about guerrilla marketing, how how did you go? I can't imagine now starting a brand in this you know in this time. Yeah. Everything's online. How did you actually go about it when that wasn't a facility available? I'm trying to think where the
0: low hanging fruit was. express. There's no disrespect to the people who support us in the early days, but yeah, I thought you know where would I actually find like minded people? And yeah, <laughs> the obvious place was. Trades Hall in uh, you know the with the union okay. most of the unions are cooperating. Okay, yeah. yeah. Now, who else gives a shit about workers' rights? Yeah. That's, and but that's uh, it. That's so I not, set up a display decision. at a, an event there actually, I think in two thousand and three, two thousand and four, the yeah the Trades Hall brought out some workers from Thailand who used to work for a company called Bed and Bath, and uh, they told their story where the company that they were working for these are the workers hmm. um, had got a contract with Reebok yeah, and um, the demand was such you know, there was expectation they'd deliver big quantities at a cheap price hmm. so the owner of the business decided to put amphetamines in the water supply wow okay yeah that's <laughs> yeah quite, amphetamines are speed
1: yeah yeah so yeah. that's just to get <laughs> that's... Yeah, I so, couldn't believe it yeah. I mean I knew that
0: workers being exploited but, but still I'm I mean, never put yeah. <laughs> so yeah the ACTU brought out these workers to talk about the experience so and we had a display at that yeah. at that event uh, and yeah. we I, I was pretty sure we were the only fashion brand yeah to bother turning up to talk about what we we're trying
1: to do so. yeah I was gonna say I mean how <laughs> was it a pretty big a pretty big hustling effort in those first years then
0: yeah because especially uh, I'm naturally naturally an introvert so it's not mm-hmm. something I actually feel comfortable doing as you know hustling people or yeah. Doing presentations, so it certainly dragged me out of my comfort zone. And uh, around that time, I remember there was some other brands who were starting up, who were kind of in this kind of space, and there were people with serious fashion experience. And I thought, Jesus, there's no way I'm gonna, <laughs> yeah. no way I'm gonna be able to compete against these people. And uh, yeah, we're still here, and they well, all that's gone. it, yeah. Yeah. So you know, I think you know one thing that we did right was run a pretty lean business model. Yep. Yeah, We didn't kind of rent fancy offices or have big teams. And yeah, we kept our products affordable. And I think uh, that put us in good stead.
1: I think it's a nice comparison to think of what it was like as well, starting a business 14, 15 years ago compared to now. But there's so many similarities. The thing is, is you're going to the places where the people congregate who are your ideal customers back then, just the same as you do now. Yeah, I mean, online.
0: There, w- there was no social media then. Yeah. There wasn't, I can't recall, Facebook starting for many years after yeah. we started, or Instagram. Um, so it was going out face-to-face, yeah. talking to people, and I still get people who met me at a sustainable living festival 10, 12 years ago. Coming in. Career, still buying stuff. That's I mean, amazing testament some, to the brand. One guy rang up and bought five t-shirts the other day and said, look, I bought a t-shirt from you about 10 years ago, and it's just worn away. <laughs> it started falling apart, so yeah. i thought got a better time to buy some more.
1: That's amazing, yeah. yeah. Um, just to move I've just noticed the time. So I said we'd, we'd yeah, yeah. go for 30, 40 minutes. There's so much to cover off. So we'll come towards wrapping things up. I've just got a couple more questions that I'd like to cover. And one of them is, you know, whenever I have anyone on the show, as I say, this is something that I'm running in parallel to start in my business. So... One thing we've encountered as being a trouble getting off the ground is that we can't, we're really struggling to meet the minimums of what factories want us to produce. And, you know, you've gone out here and your your standards are extremely high as well. How did you combat that at the beginning or did you yeah, just I'm have cool. to?
0: Yeah, I just put my, you yeah,
1: know, I took the risk. Money down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. I think that's all that needs to be said. You've just got to, if you're going to do it, you've got to go for it. Yeah, we get,
0: I get approached and I think I actually, told you when you came and first saw me that yeah. we get approached every couple of weeks by people wanting to create their own eco-ethical fashion brand yeah and yeah you know, when you tell them the minimum order quantities you know, they kind of scare i think well how are you going to survive if you can't afford yeah the, the, that kind of quantity yeah.
1: so i mean you know you've lasted for 15 years now doing this and hopefully many years more with lots of growth ahead of you um what do you think has been you know, the secret source to, to managing to keep going while all these other companies have dropped off the face of the earth, how have you kept going?
0: I know, I suppose, because i I put so much on the line, yeah. I couldn't afford, I couldn't afford not to That's it. Um, but on the same token, I've I've run a pretty lean machine. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when things have been tough, I mean, the global financial crisis and everyone's losing their heads and, mm. you yeah. know, I didn't have a fancy office in the inner suburbs of Melbourne. We had a little yeah. warehouse in the outer suburbs, you know, in Fentra Gallium. You know, you're, you've actually visited us in Baronia and, yeah. you know, we've been out here for a while. You know, and the rents here are about a third of what they are in the inner, inner suburbs. But yeah. I know most of our market is in the inner suburbs. Um, mm. You know, if I'd actually... Yeah. Some people would say, Oh, you should have kind of set yourself up in, in Brunswick, whatever, which we should have done, but we would have been paying triple the amount of rent. And that's yeah. a huge amount of stock I'd have to sell to, to just meet the it. rent. And also, you know, I've never, and so it's almost. I mean, actually, um, on reflection, you mm. know, we may thing things hard for ourselves. I mean, because we don't have a, because I've run such a lean operation, I haven't been able to reward staff as much as yep. you know, I could have been. Or I've had really good people work with me and, you know, people work with me for three or four years and, yeah. you know, they're out, able to go out and get paid, you know, 25, 40, 50% more than what I was paying them. Yeah. And, you know, if I had the money, I would have liked to have kind of kept them on. So, um, that's kind of been showing challenge I and I tend to employ people who are straight out of university or are yeah. just starting out and they don't always have the skill sets that I need. So it means having to do a lot of stuff myself or. Yeah.
1: I think there's a good balance. Make compromises, though. make compromise. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great balance, though, that you've you know you've gone in and you said, "Fuck it, I'm going. I'm putting everything in. Yeah. I've got to do it." But you've had the balance, and you've not overexerted, and you've still kept a lean operation.
0: Yeah, and also I think the training that I had on the remote Indigenous communities, because you know working 300 kilometers northwest of Alice Springs with bugger all resources, yeah, uh, I've learned how to kind of do with the minimum. I, I try to use as much technology as possible. I mean. Um, Actually, we put on a staff member just recently, and uh, she knew about our brand for quite a while. And she thought there was thirty staff oh, working. Yeah. Here. and that's and a great compliment. Saw, yeah, when she when she saw four people working here, and I'm the only, I'm still the only full time employee. Yeah, uh, she was kind of shocked. Yeah, yeah. But you know what I would have done differently is I would have brought on, built a bigger team, a team of people around me like what you guys have done. Yeah. Um, I would have, would have brought investors on. Yep. A bit earlier and yeah, than what we're actually doing. But mm. yeah, I also met people who've been thoroughly screwed over by
1: investors. Oh, for sure. And screwed over by impact investors. A question that I'll ask anyone who comes on that's kind of the closing question before I hand over you to you as well to talk about what you've got coming up in the year ahead. But um, you know, a lot of a lot of companies and a lot of people working in this space understandably take issue with greenwashing. And that's something that we're seeing more and more is that brands out there are talking about their sustainability impact their you know their ethical impact when as you say we've talked about it a lot today under the hood there's just no substance to back it up now i think or minimal substance yeah or minimal substance and i think we can agree that you know that it it isn't right to do that but from a consumer perspective and from a market evolution perspective do you do you see that there's some benefit to organizations or so companies like yourselves that by these larger companies effectively doing a bit of greenwashing they're getting people to think about it they're getting people to want the more ethical product do you think that that's actually a good shift in the market i
0: know i get really cheesed off when i see ethical washing or greenwashing, and yeah and it's not just retailers or other brands it's also organizations um yeah um, um but the fact that they are doing it, I suppose, gives you confidence that there is, it must mean because they think that consumers give a toss. Yeah. Um, but I also know that, you know, they might really be relying on research, and I know that the research might say one thing, but what people actually do is obviously a different thing. True. Um, so I think I we gave you that example yeah. where the ANU says 6%. So more recently, there's there's an, an organization called uh, the Lojas Report, Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability. Okay. It comes out every two years it's put out by there are different editions one in the united states one in japan one in germany and there's one in australia uh, the one in australia is put out by uh, the mobium group in, yeah. uh, in in south melbourne and um you know as far as their research is concerned is about a, about 10 to 15 percent of the australian population will shop will put its money where its mouth is and shop its values yeah um, about 50% of the Australian population doesn't give a toss. Yeah. um, Which is quite easy to get depressed if you actually think about it. I know. Yeah, one or two
1: people just don't care. Yeah, but then you also got
0: to realise that there's about uh, 35 to 40% population who could swing, Mm. who could become conscious consumers if they became aware of the issues and and if you made it easy for them to make the change. So... that's what I'm focusing on. I'm not focusing on that 10%, because yeah. they're going to buy it anyway. Because once they actually scratch the surface and look at the credibility of what we're doing, they realise we're the real thing. Yeah, it's trying to convince that 40, 35 to 40% that yeah. they need to make the change. And you make it easy for them. You're trying to make the products affordable. And you think yeah, about, you know, yeah. You yeah, you're trying to make them kind of good quality. Yeah. Um, and you got to make and raise awareness and make it accessible i mean mm-hmm. this is why it's important in the online space i mean because we don't have many re- we do have retailers but not many yeah and you've got to make it easy for people to actually find your product
1: um just for anyone who has been listening who's now heard about all the awesome things that you do what what does the next year look like what are you going to be rolling out what can people get involved with yeah first up we kind of have decided
0: to bite the bullet and relocate the business we decided yep. that uh being the outer suburbs has actually probably held the business back. So we're okay. uh, seriously looking at relocating to Brunswick or in that area at the moment. Nice. So we're looking for the space and hopefully by about, maybe by the time this broadcast, yeah. we may have relocated. Oh, wow, that uh, soon. <laughs> yeah, I've actually found a couple of places just Great. trying to negotiate with the landlords. Yeah. Um, secondly, um, we really want to get this crowdfunding for equity campaign going. So hopefully by March, uh, we'll be offering... People the opportunity to invest in the business and it could be as little as two hundred fifty dollars. Yeah, up to ten thousand dollars through the crowdfunding for equity. So, if anyone wants to own a share in a genuine eco ethical fashion brand, they can kind of wait for our crowdfunding uh, for equity campaign. If they can't wait until then and they've got more than ten thousand dollars to invest, we're happy to talk <laughs> to them sooner rather than later. Yeah, so they can reach out to us via our website or you know, our, our email which you'll find on our website yeah um, we're also I'm working hard on expanding our footwear range and you um, yeah, I'm, I'm building my team I'm looking for people who've got skills that I don't have who can actually help us um, scale up yeah and um, hopefully within the year we'll have actually got our, our distribution in North America happening as well Brilliant. yeah so yeah man um, despite the challenges that COVID's given us uh, the brands actually come out of the two lockdowns that we've had in a str- in a stronger position yeah. than when we got cool. into it. So cool. yeah, that's so interesting. So, no, and good luck with your venture as well. I mean, I think yeah, you, know, you guys have got you know skill sets that other brands don't have. So yeah, I'm sure you will do well as well. I'm interested to see what you guys do, and hopefully right. together we'll disrupt this industry a bit further. I and mean, that's it. That's I've, what we're here for. I fight. I find it—it's you know, one thing that I find actually interesting—is uh, working in this kind of space without actually having a background in fashion and uh, <laughs> yeah. um, just meeting people who kind of have been working in the industry for quite a few years and kind of get a bit shitty with me because <laughs> they talk about how the, the industry exploits people was who always who bad for the environment. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I think that's great about this as well, and you know, it's kind of what we're doing and. You know everything that Nick's just talked about there about getting involved with the equity and finding out more, you'll be able to read more about that in the show notes of this episode as well. We'll put any links to there once things get up and running. Um, Also count me in, I'll definitely be getting on there for the crowdfunding so that I can say I've got a stake in Etico. Definitely want to be a part of that. And yeah, I think it's about disrupting the industry. I think you're not going to go out there to the the broader fashion industry and find brands that will sit down together have the conversation have the honest transparent conversations as well and you know cross promote but we're here to lift the tide and disrupt the industry and you know build the market for all of us
0: i mean we're not i'm not interested in ticking boxes just to be seen as doing something right i mean i want to disrupt the industry i mean but nothing's going to change unless kind of consumers change and consumers can't change unless they can actually find a, a genuine alternative. And so that's where the role of brands like yours and ours is, is to actually help people shop their values.